0: Virtuous Men, a podcast devoted to sharing the... Welcome to Loose and Unscripted, where we go over the making of Season 3. I'm Jamie. I'm Scott. And we are the creators of Virtuous Men.
1: Thanks for joining us for another Loose and Unscripted. We're going to go through Season 3 episode by episode. Scott, we did it. We did it. We made it. We made it. We survived. Season 3 is in the books, and I thought it was a fantastic season.
0: Yeah, Well, I remember you said when we were planning on on doing this part of the episode where you were saying, this is quite possibly our best season yet. And I hold to that statement. Yeah. Actually, no, you didn't say it was quite possibly. You said it actually was the best, and I was the one who said it was possibly.
1: So I I was supremely confident. Yeah. yeah, it's and you you had your doubts.
0: Having yeah. <laughs> having listened to it again, I am leaning toward becoming a believer in that statement that yes. you made. You've been converted. Yes, I'm a convert.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, well let's get into it. Episodes one and two for the two-parter of Frank Hamer for the virtue of law and order.
0: So I guess my first question is what led you to want to do Frank Hamer for this particular virtue, and how did you hear about him, and, and what kind of drew you to him?
1: So Frank Hamer I first heard of actually through the movie Highwayman with, with Kevin Costner. Really loved that movie. And then I wanted to see more, like, who this guy really was. So I started doing research and came upon a book called The Epic Life of Frank Hamer by John Bosnecker, who we were able to get an interview with. And that was kind of a process, like all my interviews in season three. Um, I contacted John maybe two, three months before we managed to get an interview with him. And he finally got back to me and we set it up. It's a really cool interview because he is an absolute expert (laughs) on Frank Hamer. He's been passionate since he was a kid about the story of Frank Hamer and Bonnie and Clyde and that whole, how it all played out and how they finally tracked them down. And he wrote a book. He was he said he was trying to, to get some of his historian friends who are really into the Wild West and Old West. And nobody wanted to write it. And so they're like, hey, why don't you write it? So we finally did. <laughs> uh uh-huh. And it's a great book. And the way he writes is really cool and really enjoyed that. So that was kind of when...
0: And you read the entire uh, book, right?
1: Yes, yeah. so the whole book. And that was... I read it kind of while I was writing the episode. And then um, it was kind of an interesting time because when we interviewed him, the defund the police movement was still kind of in full swing. And, yeah, uh, that's right. I wanted to tell a story of what a good lawman looks like because I I believe John John said it when we were interviewing him he said uh, just because there's a few bad apples in the in the bunch doesn't mean you throw out the whole bunch and I really wanted to highlight a lawman who who lived in a different time than us and it was very it was a very different atmosphere and environment but he was an example of integrity honesty, and John in the episode, I thought it was really cool how he contrasted Hamer's time to the modern day, and how, how policing has changed, yet also pulling things from the past that we can still use today. So it was a really cool episode, cool interview, and uh, I want to say thanks to John for, he uh, shared our episode on on his Facebook page and we got a good um a good bump in and download from that. So thanks for that, John.
0: Yeah, it was it was a really enjoyable episode to listen to. Especially I mean, hearing him talk was great because the way he talked, he, he peppered throughout the episode, he sort of talked about um the kind of research he had done throughout his life for the story, and it was astonishing too, just from a writer's perspective, I just think to myself, well, yeah, that's practically I mean that's years worth of work doing that sort of thing is researching FBI files and police yeah. files and getting interviews with someone who knows someone who knows someone from that time period so it was very cool hearing from someone who had who had really done all of that grunt work to bring us the story of this guy who was from that time
1: absolutely yeah and in this episode there's there's a lot of gunfights a lot of stuff. Yeah, great I could sound tell effects, Yeah, you, I had fun with that. That
0: was a the theme for this season is Jamie <laughs> doing gunfights. So that was a real theme for this yeah. season in the sound effects department.
1: No kidding. And of course your uh I mean, we're, we're not gonna play it because it's it's private, but uh your barrow outtake was is still something I laugh about. Well
0: you should maybe provide a little bit of backstory <laughs> about what that is. It's basically it's become this outtake that's <laughs> been legendary among us, but so, I, I guess to describe it, so every once in a while, we, we read lines from for each other's episodes, like if you need an additional mm-hmm. voice, that sort of thing. So, he had me read a line. It was from one of the people, though, that was part of his group, yep, ha- right. Hamer's group. And it was right before they were capturing, bon- or killed Bonnie and Clyde. And he whispers, it's Barrow, the Parker woman's with him, or something. And I gave <laughs> you a bunch of different takes, but then I just completely let loose on one, and...
1: And you even added our favorite Hot Fuzz reference in there. Yeah,
0: of course. (laughs) And I threw a Hot Fuzz reference in there, too, for those. But that'll just remain private for all time. But
1: it's become legendary
0: among the crew of Virtuous Men. Oh, yes. So one thing that was also interesting about this episode is that it was our first two part episode. Oh uh, yeah. So um, normally I'm averse to that sort of thing because I tend to like to edit. I'm I'm kind of the most ruthless editor of the two of us. Like I like to get it down to Agreed. as short yeah, to are. as short as possible. I don't I don't like a lot of extra flab on there. But <laughs> in the case of Hamer, I feel like it was right to make it a part two because of the way that his life and career separated, like you sort of have before Bonnie and Clyde and during Bonnie and Clyde. So maybe you could explain your decision behind making it a two-parter. Yeah.
1: So in the beginning, I had no intention of making it a two-parter, but as I started, you know, kind of, well, the start of where Bonnie and Clyde come into the story, I realized, wow, this thing's going to be really long,
0: (laughs) which is a common theme for you. Yeah. I like, I like
1: to, to, to get all the juicy details in there. So I just kept writing and and uh, said, well, I'll figure this out later. And while I was going through it after I wrote the script for it, I thought, oh, you know what? This is perfect. We'll just make it two parts. There's a perfect segue here into part two, and there's a, a perfect part to break it up. And I thought it worked perfect.
0: Yeah. I think in the case of this episode, it was, it was right to do it that way. Yeah. Because, I mean... If you, I feel like if you did that for someone whose life didn't really follow a pattern like that, it would have just been sloppy and weird. But in his case, I feel like it was perfect.
1: So, yeah, perfect episode to do our first part one, part two. All right, episode three, because Hammer was part one, part two. Episode three was Michelangelo, which was written by Scott. So talk <laughs> about who you interviewed. You interviewed two people, right?
0: Yes, so I kind of wanted to dip into your world for what you did with season two, where you did an episode where you interviewed two people. Yep, for John Muir. Yeah, and um, the reason that I wanted to interview two separate people is because I wanted someone who could provide historical information about Michelangelo himself, Mm -hmm. and then someone to talk about the artworks, and then a commentary on the history Behind okay. behind his life, so I kind of wanted to approach it from two separate angles, and I didn't start the episode wanting to do it that way. I initially just had one person, uh, Ross King was the one, and I've read a number of his books. Really good author of uh, art history, and his book about Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel is fantastic for those that haven't read it. So I and I and this was one interview where I I did it very early, probably earlier than I've done any other interview before. I even wrote the episode. I I, uh, I probably had the interview three or four months before I even wrote the episode. So Mm -hmm. it was kind of just sitting there waiting to be used. So (laughs) it was a, it was interesting in that end. So normally in a, in a situation like that, I wouldn't pursue doing somebody else, but I felt like, you know what, this would be cool to have another perspective here. And I was fortunate enough to get Andrew Graham Dixon, who, whose work I wasn't as familiar with, but when I, I looked into his body of work and I recognized certain things that he had written and, um. Yeah, it was really really great to get his perspective as well.
1: So, you're an art lover have been all your life. What was the most enjoyable part of making this? Cuz it's it's Michelangelo. So. That's right. Like and part of and that's a blessing and a curse cuz
0: I mean he's one of the most monumental figures in art history, if not the most monumental. So, I mean, where do you even begin, you know? <laughs> I think one of the, one of the more enjoyable things about the episode was um I think stripping away the mythology that's built up around him because that's one of the goals that we've had with this project from the beginning is to make the is to make these men real men. Yeah. Like make them into real men, you know, because often we make them into mythological figures. But and few people are more mythological than Michelangelo in terms of art history. So it was really enjoyable stripping away the mythology and just basically bringing him back down to Earth as a real man that we can relate to. Because in reality, the work that he created was phenomenal, but he was not an easy person to get along with. I mean, <laughs> he was he was a very abrasive individual in a lot of ways, and rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and was very outspoken about his frustrations, and you know, just very argumentative if he wasn't getting his way, and you know, butted heads with Pope Julius II about a lot of things. His greatest patron. And so, I mean, he was—he would not have been an easy person to get along with, and you don't really see that in the work that he created. I mean, you look at something as beautiful as the Pieta, and you don't think the person behind it was this ugly, rude, self-absorbed guy, you know? <laughs> I mean, and that's also one of the great ironies, too, of Michelangelo, is that physically he was not a very attractive guy. I mean, you see <laughs> portraits of him, and he looks very ghoulish. So it's interesting that someone that created some of the most beautiful and famous works of art was himself, not really that good-looking or enjoyable person to be around for the most part so it was interesting bringing him back down to earth i guess in that way
1: yeah i thought of when i was listening to this for the first time i thought of way back to season one where Mm. you interviewed martin kemp and where he was Mm. actually he was actually talking about season one episode one if you're an art lover go back it's it's uh leonardo da vinci but uh when martin kemp was talking about da vinci's temperament he mentioned that Leonardo was a guy, or, or that uh, Michelangelo was a guy, that you just you didn't tell him what to do, and you had to be very careful with how you handled him. So it was yeah. cool. I I really yeah. thought back to that episode when I was listening to this one.
0: And I was even tempted too to reach out to him to get his perspective on Michelangelo, <laughs> but I was just thinking, no, I've already. This I'm just making this harder than I need to. <laughs> just bring it back down to earth. Do right. do to yourself what you're trying to do to Michelangelo. Just come back to earth. Yeah, it was interesting comparing the two because I think to myself, man, if there was one episode I would do anything to go back and redo, it would be Leonardo da Vinci because they were titans of the Renaissance and they famously disliked each other. So that was another yeah. interesting thing, too, is sort of getting to mention da Vinci in this episode as kind of a link back to season one.
1: Yeah. I mean, your first episode, our first ever episode.
0: That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Was that Vinci. was the first
1: one thing I enjoyed, but uh this ep- this uh episode was the quote where Leonardo's painting <laughs> and he's the quote is him describing his body shape and how he felt yeah. when he was painting the Sistine Chapel <laughs> the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel
0: oh well the greatest thing I'm glad you brought that up because I think it might be the the greatest joy of this project is having my dad record lines for Michelangelo <laughs> yes. and getting him to say the line, and as a counterweight, I use my arse, <laughs> which is a line in the poem, which is really great because it was this poem that he wrote about his experience that was a line yeah. in it. and ne- it, was, it was great getting my dad, of all people, to say that line
1: out loud. Next time I see him, I'm just going to say, hey, Larry, you know— could you reread that? I just Can you reread that for me has, in
0: real life? Right. As I recorded it, I, I think I wept a little. It's just the overwhelming <laughs> beauty of it all. You know?
1: uh, we love you,
0: Larry. Yes, we do. We very much do.
1: <laughs> okay, episode four was John Coffee. And this was our first movie character we've done on the podcast. That's right. So John Coffey, why John Coffey for the virtue of goodness?
0: That's a very good question. I think, um, well, I guess for one thing, I am a huge Stephen King fan. And um, more people know about the Green Mile from the movie than the novel. And, um, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that Stephen King initially wrote it as a serial novel, which is basically a novel broken up into little tiny paperbacks that are released one after the other and then eventually published as one. And it was a really common technique in the Charles Dickens era. He used it a lot. So more people know about him from, about John Coffey, the character from the movie, but I really wanted to dip into the novel. And for those listening, most of, pretty much a majority of the information that is in that episode is from the novel. A lot of it is not from the movie. So I I thought it was a really cool chance to kind of illuminate the novel a little bit more because there's so much more richness in the book than the film. And it's it's a very good film, don't get me wrong, but um, the novel is much richer and I felt like there was enough material there that I could do justice to that character and, and make it interesting. Because, I mean, with a lot of these guys, the information that we provide is strictly about about the the person, whereas someone like John Coffey, there is very little we know about the character because by nature, he's very mysterious. So the way that I wrote the episode is I wrote it from the perspective of Paul Edgecombe, which is the character that Tom Hanks plays in the film. So I wrote it from his perspective and him kind of reflecting on John Coffey, which is how basically how the novel was written. So it was cool to write the episode in that particular way as a way of kind of making it not so much about John Coffey, but about this character who's affected by John Coffey. I think that's the reason why I wanted to choose John Coffey, is because he stands out as a symbol of goodness. It isn't so much that um every single little thing that he does is personification of his virtue, is that his character has symbolic power. Mm. And I thought that was a very interesting way to approach it. And I think I think that and there's something very mythical about that as well. Like it has a the purity of mythic storytelling to it where there isn't all of this backstory there isn't all of this character analysis it's just that this character is an archetype of this virtue yeah. so we and none of our people that we've done have been like that so it was really interesting to, to approach it in that way is, is getting someone who's more symbolic of this virtue
1: yeah that's true because most of our episodes are here's you know this person was born here you know in this time period, here were his influences in life, and that's what led him to this particular act, or things that he did that exemplify this virtue. And yeah, it's very not like that. Um, I, I imagine it was kind of hard, at least it would be to me, to do this episode and not constantly be thinking of the movie. Was that difficult?
0: Oh no, not at all. This okay. w- this was far and away the in terms of the writing part, this was the easiest episode bar none I've ever mm. had to do because I've listened to the audiobook more times than I could count. Like ever since high school I've been a fan of this book. I kind of used it as a guide here and there and there were a few details that I did pull from the movie. So this was another interesting thing too is that I feel like there were things there were a few details that the movie did better than the book in my opinion. Mm. Like what? Well, a good example is, so the, so the way that Paul Edgecombe finds out who's actually guilty of his crime, I think the film did that much better than the novel. And I mean, the, the novel is kind of more of a... It kind of takes a whodunit kind of turn where he, the Paul Edgecombe kind of plays detective and goes around and tries to find out who did it. And uh-huh. in the movie, it's a lot more simple. And I think it's a lot truer to the story. So it was also interesting kind of taking both versions of the story and putting it together in this one whole. But most of it is the novel, but there's a lot of the movie in there as well. And I got to say, there's one moment in the beginning. I think it was right, right as the body of the work starts... That's probably the most proud I've ever been of, of a particular audio section.
1: Yeah. The... In terms of
0: the sound effects of the the Chain Gang song. Yes.
1: That was good. That was good. It really put you in the time period. Yeah, because, and... oh man,
0: I was, I probably listened to that thing over and over again. I'm like, man,
1: I am, Started singing along. I am
0: a podcast <laughs> master here. <laughs> so... And and that was also what was interesting about that too is that I think that that is probably the record for the longest we've the longest intro to an episode without any of our dialogue starting it off. Oh. Where it's basically just thirty or forty seconds of pure sound effects and music. Very true. So like I didn't I'm even saying, notice that, but I'm, you're probably right. I'm pretty proud of that.
1: Well done. Well done.
0: So episode five, you chose to do David Eubank for the virtue of sacrifice. And this was definitely a virtue where you could have chosen thousands of different men. I mean, it's such a prominent virtue in the world. So um, I guess I I was sort of interested as to why you chose him particularly for this virtue, like about how he exemplified sacrifice, because he exemplifies so many different virtues, like courage and bravery and all those other things. But sacrifice, I just thought that was an interesting choice of a virtue to highlight.
1: Yeah, so I first heard of David Eubank and Free Burma Rangers from our mutual friend, John Gallagher, who does the voice of Frank Hamer in in, uh, episodes one and two. And it was a couple of years ago, actually, we were on a backpacking trip, canoeing backpacking trip, and he had mentioned, hey, you got to watch this movie, Free Burma Rangers, it's incredible. And it's about this guy, David Eubank. And I don't think i actually watched it for another year. And so... It was last summer, I finally watched it, and I was just amazed by this guy's life, his family go everywhere with him, his kids have grown up since they were born in in Burma, in a conflict zone, and that's, that's just normal life for them, and so I watched the movie, we were obviously already doing, I believe, season two at the time, and I thought, I have got to do a post about this guy at least and so i i bought his book his book is do this for love and i started reading that and then i reached out to free burma ranger to see if i could possibly get an interview with david and it was a very long process because obviously he's you know all over the world very limited Connection to internet or anything, you know. Most of the time,
0: and you were determined for this one. Like you, I was, you were yeah. going to get an interview no matter what.
1: Yeah, there was a point where in writing the episode, I had already written a good part of it, and you had mentioned, "Hey, have you heard back from from David yet?" <laughs> right. And I said, "No, not yet." And, you know, get, give it another week. Give it another week. And finally, he he did get back to me. We connected over email, uh, and then we connected over uh, just texting, and we set up. Uh, an interview, and I think I I worked that morning, but I I, I right. worked it in right, right. and <laughs> and it turned out um, that's right the time that he was supposed to call in, he didn't call. I was like, ah, oh, no, and something something must have happened, or you know, he just, just couldn't make it, couldn't make it work, and so I was really bummed for a couple hours, and then I finally get a call from him, and he calls me on the phone saying, hey, sorry, I'm I'm in Syria, and. <laughs> And we just lost power this morning, and so I couldn't call you. But we have power right now, so if you want to do the interview, we'll just see how long it lasts. And we chatted for a good fifty minutes, and then he lost power again. But it was, it was one, it was probably the, my favorite interview that we've done because he's such a down to earth guy. Uh, he is so aware from Washington, and uh, he he comes back to Washington, you know, pretty much every year with his family. And we're both into hiking and climbing, and we chatted about that for a good 15 minutes. He's like, hey, you know, when I'm in Washington next, I'll let you know, and maybe we can go on a hike together. So just totally down-to-earth guy, and it was a really, really great interview, not to mention the story that we were telling in this episode, that the first-hand account from him was just incredible.
0: Oh, absolutely it was. Well, and I was so impressed with how good the audio sounded for one thing cuz like hearing hearing you talk about the process of getting it considering where he was. I thought the audio was going to be really fuzzy and choppy and but I mean it sounded no different than any of our other ones. So I was really impressed by how well how good it sounded and and his insights too. Like like you said, he was very down to earth and you know, like it's normal for him to do what he does and for most of us that's completely unthinkable. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, And I, you know, in in doing this episode, I I don't think I quite realized how much work it was going to be in telling this story. And it is by far our longest episode ever. But I just I couldn't tell the whole story and keep it below our 60 minute threshold that we like to keep it under.
0: Right. I mean, and it, I feel like considering that none of our other episodes were this long, I felt like it was all right to make an exception. And and the fact that we were kind of breaking ground with this season anyway. We were doing things that we'd never done before, so yeah. we do a fictional character. Why not have an episode that's almost an hour and a half long, you know? Mm-hmm. And considering the story you were telling, I felt justified. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and this, this episode came around at a good time I when I was recording it because this is right after Christmas and I managed to get COVID. And so I- Yes,
0: you are a survivor. <laughs> you, you are one of them.
1: I managed to, um, I grabbed all my recording equipment, my computer, and I was locked in, in my bedroom for about 10 days.
0: Right. You showed me a picture. You were just stuck in your, You were you were working <laughs> among the coats in your closet.
1: Yes. I literally, so there would be no echo or you know, sign from outside the bedroom. I was it a good recording place? The closet. It was amazing. Yeah, you should. I, I see why people do it. Now. We should you loosen the in the closet. <laughs> well, maybe not, but you know. <laughs> I just had all my stuff in there, and you know, I had just enough room to to sit down and record. And then when I'd get up, I'd have to you know move the desk again. But well,
0: and listening to it, you would yeah. never know.
1: You would never know. And I, I hope you'd never know. I hope my voice wasn't uh, right too bad from COVID, but well, I don't think it was.
0: Oh no, I didn't notice any any difference. And I mean, and listening to it, I wasn't thinking to myself. Man, it sounds like he recorded this in a closet. <laughs> so you definitely got rid of that. Well, I got to say too that in terms of sound effects, this was probably your most elaborate episode. Oh yeah. So even more than Frank Hamer, and that was pretty elaborate too. So yeah, maybe, maybe shed some light on that.
1: Well, I I had some time on my hands <laughs> since I was I was isolating for for quite a few days, and um, I really went crazy on a couple of sections in the episode, specifically the one where where David is uh, assaulting a trench, an ISIS trench. Uh, a grenade blows up right next to him, and, you know, I have the the sound effect of the ringing in the ears, and I really went pretty in-depth with that one.
0: Well, you did a really good job with that, I gotta say. You definitely went all out with that one, and it shows. Yeah. So, good work, brother.
1: Thank you. And, uh, yeah, if, if anyone has never never seen the, the Free Burma Rangers documentary, definitely check it out. It, it's eye-opening. Um, currently in Myanmar countless deaths recently it's it's really bad over there i was in touch with david over email he sent me an email last week and just said he was i believe in C- karen state with over a hundred and seventy thousand people who had who had fled wow. uh, fled the fighting so uh, yeah be in be in prayer for them they need it and check out their website it's org, and if you feel so inclined, donate it to their work. It's, it's good work, and it's definitely needed. Alright, so last episode, episode 6, was King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table for the Virtue of Equality. So everyone knows the King Arthur story. I'm sure most people have seen a movie or two. What is something that you discovered while writing the episode and, and researching it and getting the interview with... Uh, Barshevsky was her Stephanie name. Stephanie Barshevsky. Yep. Yeah. What What is something that you found out that surprised you? Well, I think one
0: thing about the stories themselves is you're, you're right. Everybody knows the general myth of King Arthur and, and various episodes of the myth. But what really struck me about sort of seeing the myth as a whole, like from beginning to end, where the story begins and where it ends is that it's a very, it's a deceptively simple story. But it has the grandeur of great myth, which is one of the reasons why it endures so much. And uh, Stephanie Barshevsky mentioned that during the course of our interview, that it's big mythology. It's very big and powerful and impactful. But the story itself is very simple. It's a very simple rise and fall story or the fall of a kingdom or or a fall of Eden story, if you'd like, about this perfect kingdom that symbolizes all of these great virtues that comes to ruin.
1: Yeah, it was kind of... An interesting way you did it with the whole historical aspect of it at the start where you say, okay, here's here's the myth and here's how it was formed throughout the years, and here's the major influencers who kind of perpetrated the, the myth and and kept it going mm-hmm. and changed it to fit their their needs, basically, right? Yeah. I mean, well, and
0: Stephanie kind of explained that a little bit more where it was basically used as a political tool throughout its history, and and then you get later writers that make it more about storytelling and less about politics, and then you get later editions where there's storytelling and politics coexisting side by side, which was a part of the myth that I was really never aware of, so it was really eye-opening there, but I initially didn't start out wanting it to be a two-part episode in the way that I did it, not like Hamer where it's just two, practically two full episodes about one subject, but... It kind of, as I was writing it, it kind of made more sense to do it in a two-part format where you get the history of the myth and then you get the actual myth itself, which I thought was an interesting way of going about it.
1: Yeah, I really, it was interesting to, when you get into part two, you kind of realize how much of a tragedy the whole thing was. It's a telling tale of how things are in real life. We seek these ideals, but they often don't work out because they're being worked out by flawed human beings. Right. And that
0: I think that's ultimately one of the reasons why the Arthur story is so powerful, is that it's a deceptively simple story about flawed people who strive for something great and end up not achieving it. But the fact that they were striving is what makes it so enduring, I think, is that there's this ideal kingdom and that's what we should be striving for.
1: And what would you say is the lesson that you take from the episode personally?
0: I think a really good lesson to take away from it is, um, is the fact that we are all different in the sense that we have different skills and we can't all do the same things, but our inherent worth is what matters most. So we all have worth as human beings and we all, we all matter and we're, we're not all the same, but we all are equal in the sense that we all have worth and our lives mean something. So, which is also, I think, another interesting thing about the myth is that you you look at these virtues and what they symbolize and what they stand for and how the story brings those things to light. And yet it also says that it just can't last in mm-hmm. our fallen world. Right. But that doesn't mean just give up and continue to be a degenerate person, but try to be something better. Try to be virtuous. Try to be noble and chivalric.
1: Yeah. The, I mean, the moral of the story is when you lose track of... That equality, that thinking of every every person as having worth, ultimate worth. When you lose that, then everything else goes with it.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's one of the main reasons why the story endures is because we all see a picture of what the world could be in that story. And yet we realize that it, it just can't be that way which is the tragedy of it, but it also shows us what might be. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we're drawn to storytelling in general is because we're looking for that, for that thing that might be. So it's very much like coffee in the sense that it symbolizes these things. And that's really where the power comes from. It symbolizes equality. It symbolizes a perfect kingdom and what a kingdom should be or what a country should be. It, it just has that symbolic weight.
1: Right. And I've actually been thinking about this lately. The fact that we need symbolism, especially for virtues, because when we just have one person that we think, oh, this guy is a, an example of, you know, uh, courage or or chivalry or whatever it is, when they fall, what happens to your idea of that virtue? It goes with it. And so you need a, an actual symbol of that, not just a mere mortal man who is who will feel you. Everyone at the end of the day will feel you. And so you need those symbolisms behind it to help exemplify that for you. So what was it like interviewing Stephanie Barshevsky? She was from Clemson. That's where? right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Author and professor. It was interesting too, because she actually wrote a book about um, Titanic and Shackleton, I think.
1: Oh, which was very really cool. shocking. Because
0: usually whenever we interview someone, we like to look into what they what they've done, if they've written any books, that sort of thing. So I thought, oh man, wow, someone who's done a few people we've done, amazing. And she's she was basically the the really cool college professor that everyone remembers having at some point <laughs> where you could just listen to them talk forever about what they're talking about. She just had a lot of energy and an am- amazing amount of knowledge about the history behind the Arthur myth. Like I was blown away by how much knowledge she had about it and stuff that I never even thought about. <laughs> It was, Very cool. it's just always great listening to people that we interview talk about the subjects because their knowledge of the subject is just so impressive, you know, and, and her knowledge was vast. And what's, what does she teach at Clemson? She teaches modern British history. I could definitely tell too, because her knowledge of the subject was so impressive just with every, with pretty much every question I asked her, it was just this long bit of information about it. And I was pretty, pretty impressed I got to say,
1: yeah, that's what you want from an interviewee for this, especially just someone you can ask a question to, and they just rattle off minutes of, of good clippable footage for our episode. It was also
0: difficult too on that front, because often you get so much good information for each question. You just think ahead to the editing process, going, how (laughs) am I going to do this? Well,
1: hey, we're going to get into that soon here.
0: That's right but it was a really enjoyable interview and it was really it was really fun listening back over to it again and just writing the episode along with it and listening to her talk about it it was it was a really enjoyable enjoyable one all right now that we are done talking about the making of each of the episodes we're now going to get into the nitty gritty and ask each other what do we do to make these episodes
1: oh intriguing Yes, questions that everyone
0: who has listened to our podcast has been dying to know.
1: Everyone and their mum.
0: (laughs) Hot fuzz reference. Everybody and their mums is packing around here.
1: Okay, so what's your... How do you go about getting interviews? Where do you start? How do you look for people? And how long does it usually take to get one?
0: For me personally, I like to start with authors. And then if I can't seem to find anybody there, then I go to college professors or... Or someone like that, you know, or or maybe go to a site that is dedicated to that particular thing. So like for King Arthur, for example, there's a lot of websites that are dedicated solely to the story of King Arthur and things about Arthur. So I felt like that was a really good place to start looking. And it eventually led me back to uh, Stephanie Barshevsky at uh, Clemson. So it was kind of the circular process of going around author, website college, you know, it kind of so those are kind of the big ones that I personally go for. Okay. Well, but uh... it can take a while to get them too. So and so or sometimes someone gets a re- we get a reply and they say, "Oh, I'm not really that interested, but good luck on your project," which has happened a few times. Yeah, what would you say our um, our rejection rate compared to our success rate is? I think our acceptance rate is much higher. I think a lot of people are really happy to talk. and But there are those people who, and I know this has happened a few times too, where we've reached out to people and then they can't do it because something comes up or they think they are able to do it, but then something happens. Or may, like, I know there was one author we reached out to who had just written a book and they were on a book tour. So, yeah. obviously, don't have time for that. But So, some of them are probably happy to talk, but they just can't for whatever reason.
1: Come on, you can be on Virtuous Man, and they could help you in right. your book tour. And, which is the line
0: that I use, and it. then they just further alienate themselves from us,
1: you know? <laughs> so, please lose my email.
0: Exactly. Like, <laughs> please don't reply. <laughs> but there have been times where we do get someone right away. So, I think it's probably pretty rare that the first person we reach out to is the first one that we get. That's pretty rare. Yeah, it is a lengthy process but it is worthwhile in the end. It is So this is one that I'm curious about on your end of the stick cuz I know how long it takes me to do it, but how do you edit the interview audio?
1: Mm. Well, usually I'd say all but one of the episodes I've already I've already written the episode and then I go back to the interview audio and start picking that apart because I know what I want to write because I've you know I've already done the interview. I have that to draw on, and I've usually read a book, sometimes the same person, between the interview and the book, but uh, once I have written everything, I know exactly what bytes I want to go along with the script, and I'll just start listening to it. And I'll usually just put my headphones on and just hit play, and I'll start listening to the entire interview again, and I'll also have my script up on the screen, and I'll say, okay, I'm, I'm listening to this, and I'm also kind of reading at the same time, and I'll say, okay, this that they just said will fit perfectly right here, and I'll just make a note of that, and then save that, and then that's how I, and then I'll go back to that when I'm recording the episode and adding all the audio in. How about you? So basically, it's a lengthy process. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very lengthy process. Long story yeah. short. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it takes a while. It does take a while.
0: Yeah, I think this is one area where we differ, I think. Um, I'm, I'm kind of the reverse where I, I get the audio and I break the audio up into chunks. And I go, I, go, I go through and I look at the questions that I ask and I try to find all the audio that could potentially speak to that. Because very often they'll speak to that in other parts of the interview.
1: Yeah, that's so a tough then part.
0: right, and that that can be a very lengthy part too of taking chunks from that and then making one big chunk where okay, this chunk is devoted to this particular subject. So, like with King Arthur, for example. So, this is the portion where she talks about chivalry or courtly love or the writers who were influential in that. And I have a thing about that. And then the next thing is about well, maybe there's a lot of things she has to say about Lancelot and everything with that. So I have a whole separate file devoted to Lancelot. And then so on and so forth. And then as I go through that, then I, then I listen to it again. And then I sort of write around the audio. So as opposed to writing the whole thing beforehand and then putting the audio in there, because I I used to do it that way, but then I realized it was making the process a lot longer because I would have to then rewrite big chunks of it or take stuff Mm. out and, um, it just made the process much longer than it needed to be so i just kind of decided okay so whenever i get someone to interview i'm just going to write around that and sort of cuz it's just easier for me to do it that way i find it it yeah. doesn't take as it doesn't take as long Thanks. why make it longer for yourself when you don't have to but definitely two different ways of working for sure and then so i guess in addition to that so once i have the chunks of subject matter spread out then i go through and then i start the lengthy process of getting the audio and piecing it together into a coherent piece. So like this chunk here, that chunk there, and then you weave it together into one coherent thought. And then you take that and put that in with the episode. And and then that's what you choose to write around until you go on to the next thing. But I like doing it that way too, because then you can write it in such a way that the narration that you write feeds directly into the interview part. So a good example. um, So in, in Michelangelo, where I share a story about how when the David was revealed, how the first, like the the so-called mayor of Florence, that's not the proper term, but that's basically what he was. He was one of the first people to see the David. And he commented that the nose was too big. <laughs> yes, I love that part. So a good example of that is, so I wrote in the narration, the David was finally revealed in 1504 or something like that. But someone, one of the first people to see it said they didn't like something about that. And then I go right into the audio.
1: Yeah, I kind of, uh, I tried to do that. Uh, I just thinking back with Eubank as well, you you never want to. And I think with my where where I write the script first, sometimes I will go back and I'll use the audio to tell that part and just get rid of my part, because it obviously if you have a part where, especially in the Eubank case, where it's him himself telling the story, you want to use that, you know, you'd you'd want him to tell the story,
0: which is also the nice part, too, about going over people that you interview is that it's often much better when you just let them say it. Like they're yeah. just, they're doing the work for you. Just let them talk. Exactly. <laughs> you don't have to write anything. Just let them talk about exactly.
1: it. Okay. And my question is, how do you, how do you pick your music? What is Uber the process here. like?
0: This is definitely, uh, I think of all the things that are different about our processes, this one is by far the most difference between us. Cause I know with you and correct me if I'm wrong, but you tend to get all of the music you want before you even do anything. Yeah. yeah. And I the, I'm the total opposite. Like every once in a while, I'll come across a piece of music that I know I probably am going to want to use that at some point. So I put it in a folder, but generally I like to discover it as I'm writing and as I'm recording. So a good example is I'm recording Michelangelo. So I think to myself, what kind of renaissance type music could I find? So then I start looking for music like that and then I start playing my options and then I find, ooh, this one sounds good. I'll use that. Put it in a folder, download it, and then put it on there and then see how it goes. And then I basically do that all throughout the time of the episode. And, and very often the pieces of music that you choose, at least in my experience, you don't, you don't need different pieces of music for every single paragraph. Like very often you can have a five minute piece of music that is fine for five minutes, which yeah. is what I'm yeah. looking for. But every once in a while, I've made discoveries where a piece of music just fits in perfectly with my narration, and then I actually edit the narration around the music so that it is timed perfectly. Because for me, timing is very important. And this is also true of sound effects as well. Timing is extremely important. And that's probably just me being a film nerd or whatever, but (laughs) it kind of applies to this where the way it's timed and the way it pieces together, that's super important. Or... Like how long you let a piece of music play out or how long do you let sound effects take over? Is it fine just letting them go for about a minute or so? Because very often that's totally fine. I mean, if it if it immerses you in the world of the story that much more, then by all means, go for it.
1: Yeah, for me, I during season two, I started to put together an album on the music source we use, is uh, Epidemic. But uh, I'll put together anywhere from 20 to... I think Eubanka had like 40 something songs and I just, I know that this song goes together with the theme of the episode or a specific moment in the episode. So I'll just throw it in there. And then when I'm trying to go through and when I, you know what I have it all recorded, when I have all the audio from the interviewer broken up and put in the episode, I'll just go in there and say, okay, which part is this song going to work for? And I'll start adding music. And ever since it's worked really well that way.
0: So for you, it's more about your, in your narration, you think, okay, this is kind of a somber part yeah. of the story, yeah. so find somber music.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And obviously for Hamer, it was very, you know, country, you know, old west music, a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, fiddle and, yeah. uh,
0: yeah, that I think musically that was probably your best episode.
1: Yeah. I enjoyed that putting in some harmonica music, just love that. and, and. Eubank was another one because there's a lot of you know Middle Eastern music. Well, what was the the instrument I used in there? You informed me what that it was, was. A duduk. A duduk. There it's you the go. Word of the day. National
0: instrument of Armenia. It's a very very mournful wind instrument, and you hear it a lot in film scores.
1: Yeah, very really, really beautiful instrument. But yeah, Scott, I think you're the only friend I would ever know that uh, would know, <laughs> no, know what that was. I Oh, ha- well, I just
0: have a thing for instruments from other <laughs> cultures. So naturally, yeah. Not well
1: true. done, well done.
0: So between music and sound effects, which do you like to do more?
1: Sound effects are a lot more work. So if I have time on my hands, sound effects, because they're fun. And I really like uh, like the Eubank episode we already talked about is really heavy on sound effects. You have this picture in your mind, like w- the way I do it, I already have it recorded and I know what kind of sound effect I want. And you already have the sound effect in your head. But then when you start looking for individual sound effects, you find something that works even better than you had in mind. And it just, the whole process is a a changing, evolving process. And that's what I like about it so much. Sometimes you create something that is really good and it's not at all what I thought it was going to sound like, but I love it. You add it in.
0: Yeah, that's definitely the case for me with music. I find more than sound effects, where sometimes the music selection I do, it fits so perfectly with my narration that I, I change the narration around the music to make it more imp- impactful. I find sound effects are really fun to do, especially if you, especially if you have a sequence that's very sound effects heavy. Something that could potentially drown out your narration, striking that balance can
1: be tough. Yeah, that was a tough one in Eubank because there's so many explosions in that episode.
0: Oh yeah, I can't imagine how long that took.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Once again, I was in a closet with COVID, so...
0: Right, exactly. Time was not of the essence. That's why it's better to just kind of let the sound effects play themselves out in between your narration. Not always easy to do, but it's worth it because it makes the episode better. Anything to make the episode better, that's what counts.
1: Indeed. All right, last question... What about getting people to read lines? We've had quite a few people read various lines, especially in this season. We had quite a few.
0: And you, I think you, in terms of getting other people to read lines, you definitely have struck gold.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So John, our friend John, who, so let's say he did Shackleton's voice in season two. Yes. Excuse me, season one. And then he did Frank Hamer's voice in season three.
0: Which was very impressive, I gotta say, because he's not from the South.
1: No, nope. he he was he's a perfectionist though. He, we yes. sat right. I, where I, we're, I warned you. Uh, I
0: said he is going to be ruthless about yeah. his lines.
1: We sat here for right where we're sitting for a good probably hour and a half to read seven lines. <laughs> yep, he's
0: like like he'll he'll ask questions like, "Well, what part of the South is he from? Yeah, well, is he from the Kentucky South or the Louisiana South? Because that could change the tone or."
1: Yeah, you have to give him the exact context. I was—I literally pulled out the hammer book and I was reading parts to him. He's like, (laughs) "Okay, I got it. I got it."
0: Oh, that's so true. I
1: love you, John. And then I had my good friend Barang Asgarian reading uh, parts of the Eubank episode. Barang is from—he's from Iran, and he's obviously heard Kurdish people speak, so he—he knew exactly what kind of accent to use. I really, really wanted to get that because I. Me trying to do that accent would have sounded ridiculous, so.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah, especially with me in accents, like, that's not anything I'm going to even attempt to do. Cause I, <laughs> in order to avoid mockery of the most extreme degree, <laughs> but I know, I think between the two of us, you just know more people from more places around the world, so naturally you, yours have more of that flavor than mine. But, I mean, it's still a great thing if you can do it, but, I mean, you can't always do it. And, you know, when you have deadlines to meet, it's often just harder to do that. So, I mean, yeah. you know, but, it's just harder to do something. Those
1: self-imposed deadlines look get you every time, right? Every time. Yeah, last shout-out, uh, obviously my wife, Stacy, did a few lines for, for season three and season two. Yes, and mm-hmm. my
0: parents, too. My mom and dad, I want to give a shout-out
1: to you guys. You did a great job. Yeah, Larry and Stephanie.
0: Mom, you still have a chance for an audiobook career.
1: Yes, agreed. She really does.
0: I agree completely. Whenever we do our Virtuous Men book series, we'll, we'll give you a shout-out, Mom. Yeah, gotta that, do
1: that'll be her path to uh, reading for Audible. Exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> I, I can see it now. Okay, so now we're going to do something kind of interesting. We're each going to pick a 30 to 60 second clip of one of the other person's episodes from the entire series. So, seasons 1, 2, and 3. And this is just going to be basically a favorite clip of one of the other person's episodes. And we're going to play it and then kind of talk about why it was so impactful to us.
1: All right, so I'm up first. I chose season two, episode five, which was Men of the Titanic, the Virtue of Chivalry. And here we go.
0: Though there remains dispute about which songs were played, many reported that their final song was the hymn that would become forever synonymous with the Titanic, after April 15th, 1912.
1: brave things were done that night, but none more brave than by those few men playing minute after minute as the ships settled quietly lower and lower in the sea. The music they played served alike as their own immortal requiem and their
0: right to be recorded on the rolls of undying fame. Lawrence Beazley I had a feeling that that's the one you were going to (laughs) pick. I just kind of, I knew it in my gut. He's going to pick something from Titanic.
1: Yeah, that that part was an emotional part of the episode, obviously. There are people dying, and and of these guys who remained on the ship, and I had just, you know, when you were over visiting me in Indiana, you went to the Titanic Museum Mm -hmm, in Pigeon Forge. That's right. uh, In Tennessee, and I went there a few weeks later. And I had just been there. I'd seen the, the violin that they have.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That was amazing.
1: Lawrence Hartley, right? Wallace Hartley. Wallace Hartley. Yeah. They have the actual violin he played that they they got from the bottom of the Atlantic. And it's just an amazing part of the episode. What was happening. Uh, I love that you put the the music in there, the uh, Near My God to Thee. And it's kind of faded in from the you know the screams of everyone just panicking and then uh and having that
0: fate like yeah well and that was very intentional where i really wanted the music to kind of have its starring moments so i thought how effective would this be if you kind of just let the pandemonium fade out and just let the music take over and it's moments like that i think i'm always searching for moments like that because music is very powerful In anything, whether it's movies or just music by itself, music is a very powerful tool to getting to people's emotions. And what could be more emotional than something like that? Yeah. Where you just so just kind of letting the music play itself out and not have any pandemonium around it and just kind of isolating it. I felt like that really gave it a sense of power that it wouldn't have had otherwise.
1: Yeah. Very artistic. Well done. All right. How about you? So
0: I chose the theatrical intro of part one of Frank Hamer.
1: Ah, season three.
0: Yeah, roll tape.
1: They sat outside the old brothel in town. The man they were looking for had murdered two men and was now held up inside the brothel. The women were ordered out and the ranger captain ordered the man to give himself up. When he refused, they opened fire. Bullets pinged off the siding and smashed every window in the front of the house. But The young man didn't fire. He covertly stepped around to the rear of the house and took up a good firing position overlooking the back windows. There was no sign of the man inside as the other rangers continued firing, but just then the young man saw a flutter of the curtain. A moment later a shape resembling the muzzle of a pistol extruded through the gap in the curtains. Without a second thought and in almost one single motion, the young man drew a bead on the shape and fired once. Ah, very nice. Yes, I I had a lot of fun creating that one. Um, I funny story. I when I was writing Hamer, like I said, I didn't realize it was going to be a two parter. I originally created the theatrical intro for part two. I created that one first because I wanted the Bonnie and Clyde theatrical oh, okay. intro to be the the uh-huh. theatrical intro. All right. But then I ended up using it. I ended up breaking it into two parts. So I needed another theatrical intro. For this one, which was obviously earlier in his life, right? So and you were so, kind of
0: under the gun when you were doing it, yeah, so to speak.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so he, this is early in his ranger career, mm-hmm. and he goes to Del Rio, Texas, and there's this guy they're looking for, held up in a brothel, and they just open fire. I mean, <laughs> that's how they rolled back then, right? Yeah. But but Hammer doesn't doesn't open fire. He He finds a better position to try to actually see the guy, where he is, you know, what window he's trying to shoot out of, and he finds him. And uh, as we said in the episode, interviewing Bosnecker, he said that that's the only recorded shot that he fired in the whole incident was Mm -hmm. the one shot that killed the guy.
0: Yeah, I think that's what made it stand out, too, is that, I mean, it was really suspenseful, too. That's what struck me, is that, and it was very well-timed. I personally just really liked... I I really liked it. I think it was one of your if not your best intros to an episode. Like it cuz I'm a, I'm always a huge fan of those moments that just totally put you into the story. Yeah. And I I love it whenever you can be drawn into that world right away and I feel like that you really achieved that with that episode and it was really suspenseful and that single shot firing through the glass and then the ensuing chaos there. I just thought that was very well done. Really did a good job there.
1: Yeah, when I found that sound effect of the Obviously, it's two different sound effects of the smashing glass, but then someone falling and something, you know, glass knocking over and breaking. When I find that one, I was like, yes, perfect. That's another (laughs) thing, too,
0: is the layering of sound effects can be really tough. So especially with a gunfight, I just know listening to it like that probably took a long time. So it it definitely paid off because it turned out really well.
1: Awesome. Nice work, brother. All right. So final part of this episode we're going to give our book recommendations. Okay, so if you could give one book recommendation to the listeners, what would you choose in the context of Virtuous Man?
0: That's a tough one because there's so many good ones. There's a lot to choose from, and we both have delved into a lot of books for this project. So I yes, I guess yeah. I, would, I would have to say in terms of just a really good read, bar none, you got to choose Endurance by Alfred Lansing, which is... Consi- oh, yeah. Which is widely considered the definitive chronicle of Ernest Shackleton's failed journey. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of, de- I mean, there's a lot of detail in that book that we obviously didn't have time to cover. So it's just a richer experience of that story, which is the real benefit of reading books, especially for research, is you get so much more than you would get from like a YouTube video or a documentary is that books can just go into detail that those things can't. So for something like this project, you want to get a lot of that material. So I would say Endurance definitely gave a lot of great information for Shackleton. And it's just an incredible story in general. Lansing does an amazing job dramatizing it.
1: Yeah. And I'd I'd say when you're reading that book, if you didn't know that this was a true story, you would think, wow, this guy is a genius to think of this story and like, yeah. if you had no idea that Shackleton mm-hmm. was a real guy, and this this entire story really happened, and all these guys actually survived this, you'd be like, this is amazing. This should make a movie about this. This is a great story. Yeah.
0: It's the epitome of truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, exactly. And what is your book recommendation for our listeners?
1: Well, I'll stay on, on theme of season three. I would recommend uh, Do This for Love by David Eubank. It's a just a chronicle of his life um, from birth to what he's doing in the modern time. It's an amazing story after I would actually recommend listening. Well, listening to the episode, of course, <laughs> but uh, also watching the documentary free Burma Rangers and then read the book because you get so much more detail in the book as books are, but you get to, you know, you get to picture because some of this stuff. It's hard for you to picture this, if you've never, I mean, most of us have never been in a conflict zone. If you have an image of what it's like and what they went through, and then you read the story and and get even more detail, uh, that's, that's what I would do. So it's called do this for love by David Eubank.
0: And this is another thing too, that is common in our project where the other guy is reading a book that they immediately recommend to the other. Yeah. So when you were (laughs) saying, Oh, I'm reading do this for love or, or I'm reading, uh, Texas Rangers by John Balsnecker. I think you got to let me borrow when you're done.
1: Yeah, it's right on my shelf right there, sir. You're welcome to it on your way out. Hey,
0: what's that over there?
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. That is Loose and Unscripted Season 3. Thanks for joining us this season. If you enjoyed this season and you enjoy the podcast, please help us out with reaching more people and share it with your family and friends. Uh, Give us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening to if you haven't already. It does really help us reach more people. And if you haven't already, head over to Instagram and give us a follow on there. It's virtuous underscore man. All right. There is the sales pitch. Scott.
0: And we also wanted to let you know that we have a bonus episode coming out at the end of the season, and it's going to be another collaboration with a Brothers Creed podcast. And we will see you again for season four.
1: All right. Cheers to season three. Cheers to season three. Uh, Hit by a, he doesn't get hit by a grenade, but a grenade blows up close to.
0: (laughs) That was perfect timing.